0: Hear these words from the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. Now Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both her sons also died, and Naomi was left alone. Word had reached Moab that the famine had at long last ended. Naomi prepared to return with her daughters-in-law. With Orpah and Ruth at her side, she began her journey back to Judah, leaving the place where she had lived. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? It is more bitter for me than you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. Stay here with the women who work for me, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my lord. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered, She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Naomi asked her, where did you glean today? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she replied. The Lord bless him, Naomi exclaimed. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. So Ruth lived with her mother-in-law and stayed close to the women who gleaned in Boaz's fields. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lay down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. And now don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there just as the guardian-redeemer he had mentioned came along. Come over here, my friend, and sit down, Boaz said. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took some of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did. Then he said to the guardian-redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elamelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here. If If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, he said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malan's widow, as my wife. Today you are witnesses. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. Soon, she became pregnant with a son. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him, and they named him Obad. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Naomi comes back with nothing. She has nothing. Her husband has died. Her two sons have died. And in the culture of that day, and frankly, in too many cultures of our day, that means she has no advocate, no protector, no provider, no hope. So she gets word that there's good things stirring back in Bethlehem, back in her hometown, and she decides to go back. And much to her surprise, her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, offer to go back with her, which, frankly, is stupid. (laughs) I want you to picture the choices that they had. On one side, they have Naomi. I want you to get this. She's on the street corner, unwashed, dirty clothes, holding up a cardboard sign, homeless, widow, hungry need help. That's the reality of Naomi. Their other option, go back to their father and their mother. Their dad could most likely find someone else to marry them. They could have a completely fresh start. Orpah takes a look at the options, chooses this one. Ruth, for reasons known only to her and God, somehow pledges herself to Naomi. Now, in this moment, Naomi had to be thinking, oh, come on, really? I just don't have to care for myself now, I also have to care for you? I have to bring you back to Bethlehem, a childless, foreign widow? Who's gonna marry you? Who's gonna take care of you? Now my life just got a whole lot harder. Meanwhile, Ruth is doing the big pledge. Your people would be my people. Your God, my God. I'm going where you're going. I'm all in. When you die, I'm dying. I'm here. And you can imagine Naomi's response is probably like, oh. <sighs> all right, let's go. They go back to Bethlehem. And the people recognize her. Hey, wow, that's Naomi. Now, it helps that Bethlehem at this time, probably about 150 people. Most of whom are all related to everybody else. So Naomi comes back to town they immediately recognize her because she's one of the few people who's gone. And now she's back. And she's really clear with them
2: about what has
1: happened to her. Don't call me Naomi. She says, Naomi means pleasant. That is not who I am. That is not my life. Call me Mara. For I'm bitter. It is the Lord has dealt literally with me. I want to wait for. He brought me back empty. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. Life has broken her heart. And she is empty. One of our students got a call this week from his dad. Out of the blue, his dad says to him, your mom and I are getting divorced." And our friend is shocked. He's stunned. Now along with papers and midterms and everything else that is the stress of a college student life, he has this the home in which he grew up, the home in which his siblings still are, that home is falling apart. The things that he was relying on, the things that had filled him up for so many years were drifting away. And he's empty. And some of you know that emptiness. You know the emptiness of the parent's divorce. You know how it comes up every holiday, every birthday, every graduation. There's an emptiness that lingers. Others of us live and work on a college campus where it seems like everybody knows exactly what they want to do with their lives and they've got a plan and they're taking the right classes and they've got an advisor and they have an internship and they have student teaching and they have internships, they have clinicals, they got all the things. And we don't have the things. Everybody seems to have purpose. Everybody seems to have direction, and we're undecided. And so we go through the motions, and we take the core classes, and we wait for something to click. We wait for something to grab our emotions, (laughs) to grab our attention, and it's just not happening. And the things that are filling up everyone else aren't filling us up, and we're empty. And for others of us, even though it's been six weeks, maybe seven weeks since school started, we are still so deeply homesick that it hurts. We miss the food of our country or the food of our mom's kitchen. We miss the language. We miss the accents with which we grew up. We sit in class and we do not understand the pop culture references that our professor makes. I don't either, by the way. (laughs) All the things that filled us, our culture, our food, our family, our friends are far away and we are empty. And some of us are empty for the exact same reason that Naomi was empty. We had people that we loved, and they died. We want to text them, and we can't. We go home, and they're not there. We turn the corner into the holiday season, (laughs) dreading every gathering because it's gonna be empty. So we understand Naomi, don't we? We get it when she says, call me Mara, for I am bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And that's something that I'm gonna guess most of us in this room have said at one point or another, what is God doing? Why is he treating me this way? Is this who I am now? So Naomi comes back empty. She comes back empty. But at the very end of chapter one of the book of Ruth, the narrator, the person who's telling the story, he gives this little hint. He says, Ruth and Naomi came back just As the barley harvest was beginning. Now, unless you've grown up in a farming community, that's a little phrase that just you may read right on over that. But to a Jew who is hearing this story, the beginning of the barley harvest, that was like the best time. Because the barley harvest was the first harvest, and then everything else was harvested on down the line. So the beginning of the barley harvest meant that the community was all pulling together and they were working hard and they were bringing in all the food. They were storing it up. They were cooking it. There were parties and festivities and worship services of thanksgiving for all that God had provided. And so the narrator gives this little tip that Naomi is coming back just when the barley harvest is beginning. It's like coming to the States on about November twenty. When all the Christmas decorations start going up and all the commercials are on about fireplaces and nice smells and turkeys and things, and you come back and you walk into this like never ending party time. And sure enough, it turns out this foreign daughter in law is good for something. She is an incredibly hard worker. It's her hard work that catches the eye of Boaz, who's a good guy. And Naomi does a little plotting, a little matchmaking. And it works. Ruth and and Boaz get together and they have this baby. (laughs) Everything just goes. There's this big turnaround. Now, the text makes it sound like Boaz had some legal obligation to Ruth. He didn't. He didn't have to do any of the things that he did. Elimelech, her father-in-law, was a member of the tribe of Judah. He had some obligation to him, but he was dead. Son, Kilian, same, member of the tribe of Judah, some obligation to him, but he was dead. Ruth, widow, childless, Moabite. He had no obligation to her, none. Could he move forward and buy this land? Sure. Did he have to? No. Boaz goes above and beyond what's required of him by the law. Boaz, the one with all the power, he's a man, he's a citizen, He's a landowner, he's wealthy, he's the one who has all the power, and he takes all of that power and he puts it to work for the one who has no power. The widow, the foreigner, the poor, he works for her. And this is in stark contrast with the context in which this story is placed. The very first line that Emily read said, this took place during the time of the judges. Now, if you've read the judges, crazy stories in that book. If you've read judges, you know that there's this refrain that comes up again and again and again. It says, and then they did what was right in their own eyes. Which meant everybody just does what they want to do. If it feels good, do it. If it works for you, do it. Don't pay attention to God. Don't pay attention to law. Just do what works for you. So in contrast to the surrounding context, Boaz is a man of integrity. He is a man of character. He is a man who goes beyond what the Torah requires. He goes beyond what God requires. He uses his power to advocate for the one who has no power And you know what's really interesting? Through the whole book of Ruth, the narrator never refers to Naomi as Mara. Never. Because the narrator knows how this story is going to go. You see, the narrator knows that they're going to go back just at the time of the barley harvest. He knows Ruth is going to pick just the right field to glean in. He knows that Boaz is going to notice her. He knows that Naomi is going to do a little matchmaking. He knows that they're going to be married. He knows there's going to be a baby. The narrator knows that after 10 years of death and emptiness, Naomi's life is going to be turned around in the course of a summer. The narrator knows that emptiness is a temporary state. The narrator knows that emptiness is a temporary state. It's hard to believe that when you're in it, though, isn't it? It's hard to believe that it's temporary when it feels like this is where you live. This is who you are. That the thing that has made you empty has become your identity. (laughs) that you are a child of a broken home, that you are undecided, that you are homesick, that you are grief. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. This is who I am. This is where I live. It's hard to imagine that God is up to something when you are in the land of emptiness. And that's actually why we have this story You see, scholars believe that the book of Ruth was actually finally written down when the people of Judah were in captivity. So this is generations later. Generations after David, after the king, the kingdom divides, one goes into captivity, the other goes into captivity. And so when this tribe of Judah goes into captivity and Jerusalem is in ashes and Bethlehem is no more, when they are empty, someone one night around the fire says, hey, have you heard the story of Ruth? And he tells the story. And people lean in because they don't know the story. They haven't heard the story. The story hasn't been distributed. It hasn't gone on. And suddenly, the story catches fire. And it's told from one to the next to the next. One fire does it, then the next fire the next night, and then two weeks later, it's all the way across. It's extended. The story has continued because the empty people need the promise that God is still working for them. The empty people need to know that God is on their side. The empty people need to know that the Lord who has sent them away empty will bring them back full. They need the reminder of the story. And so do we, don't we? Semptiness is a pretty common human thing. We need a story. And one of the cool things is that we get to tell even more of this story than those people did around the campfire centuries ago. Because we know That from Ruth to Obed to Jesse to David, few generations beyond that becomes Jesus. Jesus who was born in the town of Bethlehem. Jesus who was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one who fulfills all of these things. He is the one who is full of the fullness of God, Scripture says. He is the one who is full of glory and majesty and power, Scripture says. He is the one who is full of grace and truth, Scripture says. And Scripture also says the one who was full emptied himself. The one who was full willingly chose emptiness. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, going all the way to the cross, the one who had all the power in the world, used his power to advocate for you. The one who had all the power in the world emptied himself, went to the cross, went to the gates of hell for you. The one who had all the power in the world rose again from the dead, destroying sin and death and hell and emptiness for you. Jesus did this for you. Jesus knows that emptiness is real. But Jesus also, like the narrator of the book of Ruth, knows that your story does not end in emptiness. Your story does not end with bitterness. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our stories end with hope, with promise, with a new heaven and a new earth. Our stories will end with fullness. And so we tell the story of the book of Ruth. And Paul in Ephesians 1, he describes the church as full of all of the things that God himself wants it to be full of. He said it is the fullness of the one who fills it with every good thing. We are the church. And so just as the one who had the power advocates for us who had no power, The way we live out of that fullness is to advocate for those we know who have no power. If your story includes divorce and you went through it, how do you advocate for those who are made empty by it? If your story includes a deep wandering in the land of undecidedness, How do you learn to seek out those who haven't made it through that yet? If your story is a story of homesickness, how do you stand with those who are living right there now? If your story is a story of grief, how do you come alongside those who have been plunged into it for the first time? The enemy would like to tell you that your story Your story that begins in emptiness and may not yet be done. Your story of emptiness has no power. He would like to tell you that you should limit your story, that you shouldn't really talk about your story. He might even tell you that your story doesn't matter. But we believe in the church of Jesus Christ that it is our testimonies of how God met us in our emptiness that can allow other people to have hope for fullness once again. So you tell your story, you say what God has been doing in your life, and we as a community, we advocate for those who do not have power. If we are citizens, we advocate for the refugee and the immigrant. If we are native speakers, we advocate for those who are not. If we are in the majority ethnically, racially, we advocate for those who are not in the majority. We stand with the marginalized and the oppressed just as Boaz stood for Ruth, just as Jesus stood for us. We believe that no one's story should end in emptiness. And so we will be people who are out on the front lines. We will be people who speak up in dorm meetings. We will be people who slide over in the dining hall so that someone else can be brought in so that someone else can find home, so that someone else can know that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, their story does not have to end in emptiness. We have been given the one who is full of grace and truth, and now we get to go and invite others into that story. The story of a God who is moving this entire creation from sin to grace, from empty (coughs) to full. Blessed be his holy name, amen. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, we thank you that indeed You are a God who moves us from empty to full. We pray for everybody in this space tonight, everybody in our hearts who is experiencing deep emptiness and they're not sure how they're going to come out of it. Use us. Use us the way you used Boaz. Use us to go above and beyond to do the right thing. And Lord, we pray too that if we are the ones in this season that we will not lose hope. That like people in exile, we will keep telling the story of a God who does indeed move people from empty to full. And we will wait with hope and good courage because we know that our Jesus is coming again. We know that he is coming and that he will fill us all with the fullness of you and we pray this in his name, amen. Well, as you know, we're finishing out International Education Week today and we're making the turn into Unlearn Week. Yes, woo indeed, woo indeed. So, for those of you who are like, I didn't know unlearn was a word at Calvin College, it is. During Unlearn, we take the opportunity to invest in really good conversations about things that matter, about race and inclusion and identity. And our college is committed to these things. We're not neutral on these things. We are all in. We are like Ruth on these things. And so to to kick off Unlearn Week, the president and the vice presidents made a short video just to let you know of their commitment and their invitation for all of us together as a community to move into Unlearn week, like Ruth, we are all in. So, hear this video from Dr. Leroy and the vice presidents of the
2: college. During the month of October, we had the opportunity to have good conversations about race, privilege, diversity and inclusion as part of our call to follow Jesus. We are in a season in which conversations about diversity and inclusion are everywhere, from the NFL to Charlottesville, and there is much to be discussed. At Calvin College, we move toward these conversations rather than away from them. We believe that it is in listening to each other that we come to understand more deeply what it is like to live someone else's life. This is called unlearn. Why unlearn? Because all of us have picked up things along the way, and we are invited to lay them down. Unlearn racial prejudice.
1: Unlearn empathy.
2: Unlearn fear.
1: Unlearn cynicism.
2: Unlearn passivity.
1: Unlearn bigotry.
2: During Unlearn, we have a chance to ask each other, what is it like to be you?
1: We also want to acknowledge as leaders that we will have opportunities to speak to these and other issues in our culture, and we won't always get this right. Our own biases and fears may slow us down. Our own baggage or guilt may cripple us. It is never hard to find examples of how sin infiltrates our community, and that includes us.
2: So we apologize for that. Those of us in leadership are the first to say that we need to keep learning, and we need to keep unlearning. But while sin is present, our God is even more present, and He is inviting and empowering us to live lives of holiness, justice, and compassion. At Calvin, we are not neutral on these issues, but we speak against racism, against white supremacy, and against bigotry. We stand with the oppressed and the marginalized, imitating Jesus Christ. We engage and unlearn because of the gospel. We unlearn sin and we learn grace. This is a great time to be at Calvin College because we do want you to Think Think deeply, act justly, and live wholeheartedly as Christ's
1: agents of renewal in the world.